Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week we speak with Lydia Slater, Editor-in-Chief of Harper's Bazaar in the UK. What makes Women of the Year so wonderful and glamorous also makes it a little bit inaccessible. And we wanted to be able to bring in the women that don't get celebrated but do amazing things. Plus we head to an auction house specialising in the sale of objects and costumes from some of the biggest blockbusters in film history. We sold a, a hat from the Temple of Doom last year for £300,000. But the Golden Idol, if that was to come up to sale at open market at auction, that would be a directly comparable price. You've got to make sure it's the real deal. There's a lot of replicas of those out there. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. It wouldn't be the weekend without hearing from Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller with just what exactly we learned this week. We learned this week how to make yourself unpopular in Wales, other than by criticising Shirley Bassey. Steady on. During last weekend's rugby match between Wales and South Africa, with scores tied at 15 each, a miscreant invaded the field amid a promising move by Wales, very plausibly costing them a crucial try in a game they went on to lose. The following audio does not quite, regrettably, convey the full rage of the crowd or the quantity of beer in which the scofflaw, once apprehended, was doused. But this was not the only failure to think through consequences of impetuous action of which we learned, as we also ended up learning quite a lot about the extracurricular interests of British members of Parliament. And we learned this, wondrously, directly because of the British government's maladroit efforts to prevent scrutiny of the extracurricular interests of British members of Parliament. Had long-serving Tory MP Owen Paterson accepted his 30-day suspension from the Commons after being rumbled lobbying for firms from whom he had been trousering a retainer, the affair might have blown over relatively quickly, like in about 30 days or so. Instead, the government laboured to protect him, as a result of which Paterson has resigned, occasioning a by-election which looms as tremendous fun for everyone but the government. The Prime Minister spent much of his globally broadcast COP26 press conference having to explain that his country is not institutionally bent. The UK is not remotely a corrupt country, nor do I believe that our institutions are corrupt. I I think it's very, very important to, to say that. Which is just one of those disclaimers you don't ever want to find yourself uttering right up there with it's not what it looks like, of which Boris Johnson may also have some experience. 
and press and public alike have taken a sudden interest in what else might have been hiding in the plain sight of the Register of Members' Interests. So we've learned, along with whom the people who are supposed to be working for us are actually working for, that if this government was a fire brigade, it would not only set its own station alight, but respond to the blaze by torching the entire street, encouraging the flames into the surrounding suburb, and then having the chief tell reporters that there had never been a fire in the first place. There's probably a pants-on-fire joke which ties this whole thing up nicely, but it looks encouragingly like this particular act of inadvertent arson may not have burned itself out just yet. So we'll save it. Moving from a monocarpic uproar to a hardy perennial, monocarpic means only flowers once do we have to do everything, also the plant motif is a brilliantly subtle wind-up for the next bit, pay attention, we learned that poppy kitsch may have achieved its ultimate expression. For it is that time of year at which the citizens of Britain once communicated their gratitude for the sacrifices of their military by solemnly sporting a subtle poppy pin in a lapel, but which has become a circus both gaudy and mawkish, with poppies emblazoned on merchandise of hotly debatable relevance and propriety. And this year we learned the actual official Royal British Legion shop was offering, at £39.99 a bottle, what was cheerfully branded as Pull the Pin Rum, with a grenade ring attached to the cork. No, don't. No, 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 don't. Oh god, Andrew, no. Well, quite. We later learned that following an amount of social media response along the lines of lads, what are you doing, the beverage had been withdrawn from sale. But we also learned from checking just now that still freely available are poppy-themed dog bowls, gardening gloves, picnic wear, bow ties, hair ties, umbrellas, and pomegranate hand cream. Good cause and all that, obviously, but we did learn that the Poppy Shop's webpage does have utility, if you log on at the right moment, in encouraging that two-minute silence at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, even if it is more of the aghast rather than respectful variety. Elsewhere on the civilizational decline front, we learned that there's a TV channel for dogs. Yes, very evocative. We learned that Dog TV, and well played on the name, those late night brainstorming sessions really can pay off, plans to charge 60 quid a year for dog-themed programming, possibly even to be enjoyed by cosseted hounds as they lap from their poppy-themed bowls. So what we've really learned is that some actual dog owners haven't learned that if what they really want is their pet's enthralled attention, all they really need to do is hang a biscuit on a string just out of reach, and that right there is 60 extra quid they can now spend on a poppy-themed collar, lead and basket, which would still leave nearly enough for a poppy-themed dog bandana. And we are not making any of this up. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. 
Thanks, Andrew. We also learned this week that on Monday the US reopened its borders to foreign visitors from more than 30 countries. And to mark the occasion, British Airways and Virgin Atlantic did something special. For Monday's edition of The Globalist, Emma Nelson was joined on the line from Heathrow Airport by Monaco's David Phelan. David was about to board a plane to JFK in New York and began by telling Emma how the occasion was being marked. BA has recreated the Concorde call sign, BA001, just for one day for an Airbus A350 to fly to JFK. And rather touchingly, it's taking off at the exact same second, simultaneously on alternative runways, obviously, as a Virgin flight. And both planes are flying in tandem to New York as a, a kind of symbol of how the US is suddenly reopening. And this is an enormous gesture, isn't it, by two huge British aviation giants. They're putting rivalries aside, aren't they, to take off at the same time in order to say this, we do have to have some sort of gesture of solidarity when this all happens again. Well, that's right. But even so, it's still surprising. They are bitter rivals. They really don't care for each other at all. And uh, yes, exactly. They've put all that aside. It's a sign of how important flights to the US are for British aviation, especially no more than uh, Heathrow to JFK is you know, the, the real moneymaker and they need to be opening that up again. And so today, this is the opening up of the US. It's also for Germany. Uh, there's a, a similar, it's the first time the A380 is flying again and they're doing some, uh, for, for British Airways that is, and they're going to Frankfurt today as a, a familiarisation flight. There's a huge amount of money to be made though, isn't it? I think BA's owner IAG is, is expecting losses of more than seven billion to have been incurred between 2020 and 2021. I mean, how much catch up can really be done? And it's, this is going to take a long time to recover, isn't it? It is. But the interesting thing is last year, Alex Cruz, CEO of uh, BA, was saying we are not in the place of making money. We're just trying to survive. Now, Sean Doyle, the new CEO, is saying we are heading to make sure that we are a premium airline. And it's an interesting difference in message, which I think indicates that BA is very aggressively moving towards making money again, just maybe not just yet. Heathrow's been quite quiet when we've gone through it in the last few months, but is there a sense of of excitement and is there a sense that you're doing something a little bit special here today? Definitely. Uh, The fact that it's got the Concorde call sign, the fact that it's an 8.20 flight, it's quite early, I, I got up very early for this. I have to say the queues were much longer today than I have seen at uh, Heathrow uh, for a long time. I've only flown short haul until now. And certainly the the people I've spoken to were saying there is a noticeable uptick in uh, popularity in terms of how many people there are here. Monocle's David Phelan there in conversation with Emma Nelson for Monday's edition of The Globalist. Staying in the city that never sleeps for our next highlight, as on this week's Tall Stories, Monocle's New York correspondent Henry Rhys Sheridan took a closer look at a clash between two admirable projects in the city. In the late 1980s, Alan Reaver gazed out from his lower Manhattan loft into the derelict lot outside and had a vision. 
He had moved to New York to set up an antiques gallery, leaving behind a real estate career in Colorado. Riva set up shop in Little Italy, in a property adjacent to the empty lot that was once the site of a public school, long since demolished. Riva approached the local community board and asked if he could rent the space to turn it into a garden. He wanted to use it to display some of the larger items from his collection of statues. In 1990, he signed a contract with the city, and by 1991, he had developed the lot into a statuary garden with landscaped features. From the beginning, he let some people into the garden at his discretion, but in 2005, he opened the space to the public. Over the years, the garden developed from a local curiosity into the heart of an increasingly affluent community. Welcoming over 100,000 people annually, it's an unusually ornate patch of green in a city where any public outdoor space at all is hard to come by. Which explains the strength of opposition to the city's plan to raise the garden and build on the site. The city first moved to end its rolling contract with Riva in 2012. In September of this year, an eviction notice was finally issued to Riva and the caretakers of the garden. To hear the garden's defenders tell the story, it's a case of a neighbourhood David going up against a municipal Goliath. But there's a twist. The proposed development, called Haven Green, will provide a resource that is perhaps even more scarce and valuable in New York City than public green space. 123 units of affordable housing for seniors. Public housing is desperately needed in New York, and seniors without shelter are particularly in need. There are nearly 200,000 people over the age of 65 on the waiting list for housing in the city. The Elizabeth Street Gardens defenders say that, of course, they want affordable housing, but they propose that a city-owned plot about a mile away from the garden would be a better site for it. It's a classic NIMBY defence, and one that is typical of wealthy urban communities whose liberal mores clash with apoplectic opposition to any perceived threat to their quality of life. For its part, the city says that it's looking to build affordable housing on both plots. Alan Reaver died in May, but his son Joseph has taken up the fight to defend his father's creation against the city's bulldozers. The case is still wending its way through the courts. Whatever the outcome, it's an illustration of how the demand for two different common goods in our densest cities can end in a zero-sum struggle. Monocle's New York correspondent, Henry Ray Sheridan, therefore this week's edition of Tall Stories. You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcos Hippie. Next, we turn to the latest edition of The Big Interview, where this week we heard from Albie Sachs, the South African freedom fighter and former constitutional court justice, sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller to discuss his influential role in the anti-apartheid struggle and how he managed to resist the impulse to take revenge against the bomber who cost him his right arm. It emerged not through reflection, but through a kind of intuitive emotion, which I think is the most powerful source of pronounced uh, important ideas. And I'm lying in my hospital bed at the London Hospital and recovering, and I get a letter 
and I'm opening with my one hand, and it says, don't worry, Comrade Albie, we will avenge you. Signed, Bobby Naidu. And I think he avenged me. We're going to cut off the arms. We're going to blind in one eye. Is that the country we're fighting for? But if we get freedom, if we get democracy, if we get the rule of law, that will be my soft vengeance. Roses and lilies will grow out of my arm. And that was just an idea that came to me, not to, to fit in with any moral precept, but that's the country I want to live in. That's how I want to feel. That's something that gives me, restores my sense of worth and dignity, that it was not for nothing. It was part of something. Idealism, the risks that we took, the challenges that we met, the solidarity and comradeship we felt amongst each other, was all part and parcel of that kind of human program. Very, very powerful. And in the end, that proved to be much more powerful than the guns and the torture instruments and the lies and the disinformation of the regime that was well-organized, well-structured, very powerful in terms of munitions and instruments, but lacked that inner core of, of deep morality and justice, which is what we were fighting for. That triumph, though, of those victories were a very, very long time in coming. This, For you personally, at least, your part in this struggle was over 30 years. You were imprisoned, uh, you were exiled for decades, and then, of course, somebody tried to kill you. And as you have just outlined, you had set yourself against an extraordinarily forbidding foe. Was there ever a point during any of that 30-odd years that you just thought we may have bitten off more than we can chew here. This is not something that is within our capacities or within my capacities to defeat. No, I I wasn't convinced that I would survive because risking death is part and parcel of the project of taking on a very ruthless and, and cruel enemy that doesn't allow for voting and contestation and opinions and so on. But never, never, never thought that we're not going to succeed. And it was partly the strength of the idea. It wasn't just a fantastic idea, the non-racial idea, the core humanity, the equality between everybody. But also we were the majority in South Africa, overwhelmingly. And we had the world on our side and we had African nations on our side. So it was a combination of inherent justice, majority of the people and world opinion with us and very, very wise leadership. Nelson Mandela is well known, but he was just one of a whole grouping of people, uh, the Sisulus and Kathrada and Helen Joseph and so many other people, Fatima Mir, you know, all participating in this great struggle. So it was never a doubt about when it would happen. In fact, it took longer, much longer than we thought. When we went into exile in 66, we thought five years, 10 years, we'll be back. And the funny thing was when, in 1990, the made his announcement in Parliament that the ANC's unbanned exiles can return, we were taken by surprise. We're waiting, waiting, waiting. When it happens, we're taken by surprise. But we jumped for joy. We jumped for joy. And coming back, that was really soft vengeance in spades. We're coming back to write the Constitution. Can you imagine? You're a lawyer. And that happens to be a vocation, and you ask to take part in writing your country's constitution. Voting is an equal for the first time. And then on top of that, being put on the court that's defending that constitution. And if that's not enough, 
being on what we call the, the decor committee of the Constitutional Court, helping with the conceptualization of a beautiful court on the site of an old prison in Johannesburg, representing the swords into plowshares. A wonderful building emerges from that. It was like one layer of soft vengeance after the other, and far more empowering and significant and meaningful and much deeper than sending lots of people to jail. When you think back to the very beginnings of this, and I, and I know the, the, the struggle and the recognition of South Africa's fundamental injustices was something you inherited from your parents in many respects, but I'm always interested in that moment where a particular person decides not just that something is wrong and something should be done about it, because I think we can all do that, but that moment when a particular person decides I should do something about this. Was there a particular moment for you or did it just sort of seem like what you were kind of, I guess, born to do? <laughs> it was prenatal. <laughs> I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> uh, I was named after Albert and Zula, who had been in the Communist Party, been a trade unionist, who died before I was born. On my sixth birthday, my dad, Soddy Sachs, who was the General Secretary of the Garment Workers Union, it uh, was during World War II, sent me a card. Albert, my son, may you grow up to be a soldier in the fight for liberation. So I didn't stand a chance. It, it was there. My mother would say, tidy up, tidy up, Uncle Moses is coming. And Uncle Moses happened to be not Moses Cohen or Moses Levine, but Moses Kutani, the General Secretary of the Communist Party. She was his typist. So I grew up in a world where my mother, a white woman, was the typist for her boss, who was a black man, whom she had enormous respect for. So in that sense, there wasn't a moment when I discovered how wicked and unfair and unjust racism was. The thing for me, though, was I hated my parents assuming I would follow in their footsteps automatically. And it was only when I was 17 at university second-year law student. Strangely enough, it was through poetry that I became politically active, hearing lectures by an Afrikaans poet called Ace Krieger on a Spanish poet called Federico Lorca. I never knew they even had poets in Spain. I thought they just had bullfights. But he'd been in Spain during the Civil War, and Ace walked up and down the platform reciting Lodka's poetry, Neruda's poem about Lodka, I was thinking that I had killed at five in the afternoon. And that did something to me. I love poetry. But poetry was inward. It was soulful. It was purely personal. What this lecture did was connect up that poetry, the soulfulness, with the big public events of the world. And a few weeks later, I was volunteering to join the Defiance for Unjust Laws campaign. After that, it wasn't a question of what has to be done, uh, where my duty, if you like, of my soul, my being was, would I have the courage? Would I have the strength? And I was pretty crushed by my detentions. I wasn't very strong when I left and went into exile. So, and I almost broke in detention. So the, these were very deep moments for me, but they weren't moments of doubt about the uh, 
nature of the struggle and certainly never any doubt that the system of apartheid would be destroyed. The anti-apartheid freedom fighter I'll be sex in conversation with Andrew Muller for this week's edition of The Big Interview. Still to come here on The Curator, we catch up with Monocle favourite Donna Hay to hear about her new book. We meet the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar UK, Lydia Slater, and we head to an auction house specialising in the sale of costumes from some of the biggest movies. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippie. Australia's top culinary icon Donna Hay is one of the most productive and best-known cookbook authors. And once again, she's back with a new release. And once again, the book is all about making things a bit easier in the kitchen. One Pan Perfect focuses on recipes full of flavour that only need one single pot, pan, tray or bowl. How easy is that? Donna joined me on the line from Sydney a bit earlier and first explained how she comes up with ideas for her books. I always work on a couple of ideas at the same time and then one usually kind of feels like the stronger one to go with. So this one was The Shining Light. So funnily enough, we talk about the pandemic as first COVID and second COVID because as you know, because I live in Australia, so we had two very distinct lockdowns of COVID. And the book came about after what I call first COVID, where we had this phenomena, and I think you had something similar, where we had a group of people that I affectionately like to call the zero to sourdoughs, because we had this huge group of people join me online and cooking at home that were really not part of my tribe before. And possibly were never going to be. They ate out, they ordered delivery, they maybe kind of assembled some food here and there, but they definitely weren't making sourdough and keeping a starter in their fridge like a newborn baby. So I just had this huge amount of people, this new tribe of people join me in cooking. I started doing Zoom classes and setting up grazing boards for a home to go with glasses of wine, all the things people were doing. I had kids' classes at 4.30 every Thursday afternoon, which became phenomenally popular. So this book kind of came out of my thinking that there wasn't going to be a second COVID, that people had been cooking crazy things and then been mastering all these crazy, amazing concoctions of things that I wouldn't, I mean, I didn't get on the sourdough train. I'm not sure about you. But I kind of thought maybe we've had a little bit too much of this kind of elaborate start of cooking. And as much as I hope these people still cook and they still join me along the way, maybe they want to do everything in one pot, pan, tray or dish. Are these recipes in this book all brand new? Are they something you have created quite recently or are they something you've been using for longer? No, they're all brand new and it's new for me throwing everything into one pan. Being a cook, I take for granted that I actually cook in a couple of pans because I do it quickly because, you know, it's my job. So it was really new for me to put that restriction on my recipes. Okay, you have to do it just 
all in one pan <laughs> or all in one tray. So it was actually a real challenge for me when I sat down to do it. And I guess, you know, always loving a challenge and how I can do things faster and quicker and more tasty. It was a really good project for me to work on personally. So how do you create these recipes then? How does it work? Is it all about trial and error? Is it something more instinctive? Or do you have a ready dish in mind and then you just figure out the steps of how to discover the easiest way to prepare that dish? Or is it even something that, I don't know, you wake up in the middle of the night with a great idea? How does it work? <laughs> do you know what? It is all of those and more. <laughs> They kind of come from all of what you said. Even when I'm going for a run, I think, oh, that might be an interesting combination. Or what if I could do that? So it kind of comes from just like what you described, or I'll think, you know, I know one of the recipes that I really love is that we always get emails around people wanting to make the perfect pavlova. Well, if you live in Australia and you want to make a pavlova around the summer season of entertaining or Christmas, it's not very fair because pavlova doesn't like humidity and Australian summers are all about humidity. So what I did is I thought, oh my goodness, it's about that time that everybody's going to start emailing about their cracked and failed pavlovas and how sad they are. So I turned it on its head. And I guess this is the way my brain works. And I made an upside down pavlova because they're also really difficult to transport if you're going to a friend's or going to the park for a picnic. So what I did is I put all the fruit underneath. I put a really nice raw sugar little bit of coconut sugar so it's a bit caramelly toffee like sort of meringue pavlova mixture on the top and I baked it in reverse so all you have to do is take the tray a bowl of whipped cream and you've got this crazy upside down pavlova. Tell us more about those emails and the feedback you get from your audience I'm wondering what have you learned about the skill of making great cookbooks over the years what do people like and what is it people don't like? I think from their emails They like big, big results, but they like it in record time and they don't want to go past their supermarket to buy the ingredients. I think the funniest ones were during the pandemic when we had lots of kids jumping onto the kids' classes because, you know, kids are unreal. They're so honest. And just opening up chats on Zoom with them and then posting their pictures and, oh, my goodness, I think I'm lighting the house on fire. Like, just very funny. <laughs> What were the favorite bits of feedback you got from those kids? Well, they started wanting to tell me dad jokes. I think we did a taco Thursday one week and there were so many hilarious jokes that they were sending in and they were just having a really good time. You know, kids homeschooling for that amount of time, especially little kids, it's just not fair. It's really hard on them not seeing their friends and just being locked inside. So it was really good to get them all laughing and it's really super cute to see their creations and their smiling little faces, their wide, wide eyes, so proud of themselves. So hopefully I've got a, a new tribe quite young, <laughs> a new tribe of cooks that are going to follow on. Donahue there and her new book is called One Pan Perfect. Staying in the world of food and drink now as we look back to the latest edition of The Entrepreneurs. In a hundred years, Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon hopes Glasgow will be known as the place where world leaders finally committed to a sustainable future. The city played host to the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference over the past fortnight. And this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs looked at two Scottish businesses which were highlighted at COP26. 
Alan Mahon is the co-founder of Certified B Beer Company Brewgooder. He spoke to the show's host, Daniel Bates, about his experience on stage at the summit and how the beer company is pushing back against greenwashing while trying to be truly sustainable. Cop being in Glasgow has been like fantastic for the city. And I think on stage, there was a lot of quite prominent experts in the educational field within Scotland. And I somehow managed to get on board with that. But we were just basically talking about the future of work for the current generation of young people and how to, I guess, future-proof them in a time where this is probably going to be the slowest pace of change that any of us actually experience. And so just how do you prepare children for the working world against, you know, climate change and and everything that that goes along with that. So that was an awesome experience. And it was great to kind of share the stage with really expert people, I guess. You know, building a business that is a social enterprise at its heart, that is your background. Obviously, we're in a bit of a different climate now through the pandemic and with such a focus on climate change. I'm curious, being in Scotland, being based there, which is seen as quite a progressive place, what the atmosphere has been like recently for a business like yours? I guess the eyes of the world have been on Scotland, but I think Scotland has kind of taken a bit of a lead on climate change, on sustainability for quite a number of years. And I certainly for the past five or six years that we've been doing Brewgooder, I think there's been a intense focus on what every business, large and small, has to do to do their bit. I guess the the overarching net zero goal that's set by the Scottish government kind of flows through into what businesses are being asked to do. And I guess from our point of view, that has been to look at the environmental over the social aspects of what we do. So, you know, for the past six years, it's been a real focus on people. But now we're starting to ask ourselves, like a lot of other businesses, both in the brewing sector and elsewhere, what we can do specifically on climate and and on sustainability. So for us, that's been a focus on actually what are the inputs into brewing that we can look to offset. And obviously there's a carbon element, but what we'd love to focus on over the next year, which has kind of been I guess, prompted by COP26 is water intensity within brewing. So brewing is a hugely water intensive manufacturing process. And what we want to do is be able to match that input of water with an output of water. So as it stands right now, every brewer beer will provide 100 litres of, of clean water from a drinking point of view for people. But we want to actually see how we can reduce that water footprint going in. So there's actually an exponential output of water for people and for planet. So how can we look into safeguarding water sources, et cetera, that effectively offset or or can be better than, than the inputs that go into it in Scotland? You know, a lot of people might criticize that offsetting model as not being as impactful, let's say, on the production side. How are you thinking about that and how you actually do things better in making the beer? Yeah, totally. And I totally get that offsetting is kind of the end of the treadmill solution, whereas it's the immediate input that you need to look into. So we have a fully distributed brewing model. So that means we brew with lots of different brewers across the country, Scotland being where our largest footprint is. So what we're trying to do with all our partner breweries, in essence, is to look at what the water footprint is and how do we reduce that and how do we reuse the water that's used in the production process across the rest of the brewery for things like heating and, you know, plumbing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's definitely a focus from our point of view on both sides of the equation. So how do we maximize the water that's unlocked on the other side, you know, all the way through the product life cycle? But then how do we start from the absolute minimal point 
with the input. So I think in Scotland, we're, we're quite lucky to never see water as an issue. Whereas, you know, in the global south in particular, like that is a, a huge resource that people lack access to. So what we don't want to do is get profligate with the inputs. And, and what we essentially want to achieve is the smallest possible water footprint and hopefully go on a journey to be, I guess, the world's first water positive brewery. Very interesting. We'll encourage people to go back and listen to our previous interview where we talked about how you got this off the ground and have started to grow Brew Gooder. But talk to me about the most latest accolade, and I guess that is coming from B Corps UK. Obviously, you are a certified B company, but one of the best in the world. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it was uh, quite a, a nice message to receive from the B Corp guys. We were included as the, one of the top 5% companies in the world for our community efforts. So that puts us kind of alongside. I guess, heroes from our point of view that we constantly look up to, like Tom's or Patagonia, Ben and Jerry's, people like that. So to be included as such a small company in a relative sense with sustainability giants like that was something that we were delighted to have achieved, you know, all the way through the pandemic. I think that we over-index, I guess, in that community focus that that we have from a a sort of social outcome point of view of, of how we use our profits and use our funds. But what that kind of taught us was that we need to improve across all different areas. So I think there's five different categories and we've basically chosen the environment and the worker category to to see if we can not only be the best place to work um, that we possibly could be, but also, you know, feeding into that, that previous chat around sustainability, how can we actually go far beyond what what we're currently doing from an environmental point of view. Alan Mahon, co-founder of Edinburgh-based beer company Brew Gouda. You can hear more about green businesses in Scotland by tuning in to the latest episode of The Entrepreneurs. You are listening to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Marcus Hippi. Next, we look back to last weekend's edition of The Stack, where the team kicked off the show on a glamorous note, featuring the iconic fashion title Harper's Bazaar UK. The show's host, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, had the pleasure of welcoming to the studio its editor-in-chief, Lydia Slater, to discuss the new December issue and their Women of the Year awards. Here is Lydia with more. Where we've benefited is probably because we, you know, we have a very clear position in the market. It's um, it's a, a very upmarket fashion magazine, but it's more than a fashion magazine. It's also a literary magazine. It's got a, a great focus on on art and culture generally, and you know the people that buy Harper's Bazaar, you know, are very loyal and, and they stick with us, and it's 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 great. And also, I think we benefited because. During the pandemic, people couldn't get to the shops and obviously they weren't travelling, but we did get a, a substantial rise in subscriptions. So those subscribers have remained with us and that's that's been really great. That's fantastic. Let's let's move on, I mean, for some quite exciting events. The Harper's Bazaar Women of the Year Awards. Uh, tell us a bit more about the awards and how important it is for, for the brand, for Harper's Bazaar itself. Well, it's uh, Women of the Year. We've been doing it for past decade about and it's a really fabulous glittering event it takes place at Claridge's and we celebrate the women who are at the the peak of the pillars of the magazine so we celebrate fashion we celebrate the women in art in film in theatre but this year because it's been so very difficult we wanted to do something something more and We've instituted some different awards. So we've got an activist award. Uh, we've got, we're uh, honouring a woman for her philanthropy. 
And for the first time ever, we have asked our readers to nominate a woman who they think deserves an award for the positive change that she's brought about in her community. And it was a conscious decision because... (sighs) What makes Women of the Year so wonderful and glamorous also makes it a little bit inaccessible. And we wanted to be able to bring in the women that don't get celebrated, but do amazing things. So we asked our readers to nominate the women that they that they wanted to see join us there on the night. And um, we whittled it down to a short list of three and then we interviewed them all. And I must say, they they are all so, so impressive. Lydia, tell me a bit more about the December issue. I know it's been out on the newsstand just for a couple of days. I mean, what has been the highlights? It's quite an important issue, I would say, as well, close to Christmas as well. Yes. So for the first time, we've got a joint December-January issue, which has enabled us to... So it's quite quite big and fat, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And because it's Women of the Year, we have done several covers. So you can choose the cover that you like the best, or you collect all of them that's the dream (laughs) and our covers are Claire Foy Um, so these are all women who came on the night and and were celebrated so Claire Foy basically for her body of work for the Queen in the Crown but also for her latest films The Electoral Life of Louis Wayne and then Jodie Comer for obvious reasons. It's um, excellent. Yes, we have Cynthia Erivo and we also have Sarah Snook for Succession. So there are those four covers and then inside the portfolio we celebrate all the women who were there on the night with profiles and, and shoots. So that's that's really the main focus. But obviously we also have our gift guide and we also have the you know, beautiful party fashion and uh, the the sort of run in our talking points. We have everything cultural that you want to do, the Fabergé exhibition. Um, we have also another cover which is exclusively on sale at the V&A, which is celebrating the Fabergé. So it's a sort of very glamorous mix of seasonal fabulosity. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. And I, I think I know which cover I would buy. I mean, I, I love all of them, but I do love Succession. So oh, I think Sarah's <laughs> would, be, would, be, would be an amazing choice. And one thing, Lydia, you, you mentioned joint cover. How do you interact with the other international editors of Harper's Bazaar? Is it quite a lot of collaboration? Is something changing there or how how does it work? I think that um, all publishers are increasingly looking for that sort of cross-border collaboration. I mean, we have always worked closely with our American edition. We take their content, they take our content. Bazaar UK is a, uh, is a big contributor to the international editions. So uh, they they will very often take our fashion content, things like that. But we are looking to collaborate closely with the with the Americans. The editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar UK, Lydia Slater, in conversation with our very own Fernando Augusta Pacheco. (laughs) 
From the glamour of Harper's Bazaar, we turn next to the toe-tapping story captured in a new documentary. Musician Glenn Copeland spent most of his life living in relative obscurity in rural Canada until 2016, when an influential Japanese record collector discovered his 1986 album Keyboard Fantasies, which went on to garner a cult following. Just a few years later, as his audience continued to grow, Copeland embarked on his first ever tour at the age of 74. Capturing his enthralling story and special presence was director Posey Dixon, whose documentary Keyboard Fantasies was released to the UK and Ireland on Friday. She sat down with Monaco's Paige Reynolds and started by explaining how the documentary came about. My first intention was just to go and record him playing the music with a band because he'd never played it live before. He wrote it on his own with two, you know, two synth machines, put it on a cassette tape, that was it. So my first intention was like, Glenn, I want to record you playing these because I want people to be able to see, you know, like when you hear that music, you're like, what's the person behind it? And I was like, how cool to have it live. So I initially was just like wanting to do performance films and maybe an interview with it. But then after I finally got enough money together to go out and film some music videos essentially I did an interview with Glenn and I spent a week with him as well just like driving all around Canada and talking for hours and hours and hours when I got back to London I sat on the footage for like a month not knowing what to do with it and then I spoke with my producer Liv who's an absolute hero and she was like let's do it Posey come on let's try and make a bigger thing so yeah it was very like unintentional and based on friendship and based on a lot of time talking and it's interesting that you said the first thing that, that drew you to it was trying to record those live performances. And I think every time the live performance stopped during the film, I was a bit annoyed. I, I wrote the film, essentially, because we needed to... We did a Kickstarter to try and fund it and then applied to, like, a million film funds. So I very much had it kind of planned out in my head. And the whole way along, it was this, like, kind of, like, three-part journey completely led by the music. And I wanted it to feel like a kind of audio-visual tapestry of his story, so putting all of his music into the context of where it had come from. So it was always going to be like this early upbringing, that music, then the kind of 70s period, the folk music, the making of keyboard fantasies. And then I wanted it just to be like, bang, we're now HD on tour, just like with the band, and you're like right in it and we're right in the present because kind of time travel was a big part, like time travel and intergenerational exchange were two of the biggest things I was thinking about. The final part of the film, we just went on tour with them. They were staying in my flat in London because no one knew who they were at the time. They didn't know if people were going to come to these shows or not. They only had three shows booked. It was really like flying by the seat of their pants and Glenn was self-funding bits of it. And it was, you know, it was really, really DIY. I was like, okay, we're going to do it. And in my head, I was like, I hope there's a big show. I hope there's a show that feels magnificent. And the first show in in London was in Otto, which is like, was the most beautiful, like warm, small show. And then the second show was at this festival in Belgium. And it was like, it was kind of awful. The crowd weren't very responsive and... It just all was a bit like, you know, we we called it the doink show when we were editing. And then that final show at the Guess Who, yeah, in my head, I was like, oh, I really hope there's a big show here. We turned up and no one expected it. 
And Glenn is such a cool cat and the whole way along acts like everything's just like da 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 But when he walked out onto that stage, I guess who, he was like, whoa, what? We were all crying when we were filming it and I still cried nearly every time I watched the end of the film. So uh, there was kind of a point that was made, I think, in the NTS interview with, with Charlie Bones and, and by Glenn himself that he always kind of felt like he was a bit out of sync and that what he was doing was not just kind of ahead of his time but kind of just beyond I guess like something that has to sit within a certain time frame could you tell us a bit about about that quality Glenn from birth has been someone who's been very much kind of existing in their own existing in a way that I think is very truthful to them you know and I think one thing that really struck me when I was writing the first part of the film, kind of really trying to unpack as much as I could of his upbringing and his kind of childhood and teenage years, he went to McGill University to study classical singing at 17 in the early 60s and started living as an out lesbian, which was illegal then in Canada. And I think that I was... When I started making the film, in my mind, I was like, oh, the 60s were a time of like free love and liberal thinking and stuff. But it wasn't like that. And I am so grateful that I had all this time to do. I did like a lot of research and a lot of speaking to LGBTQ plus archives in Canada and in the States and stuff. And everyone I spoke to was like the fact that he was living as an out black lesbian in the early 60s at university is wild, you know. And I think... The whole way along, he's been 10, 20, 30 years ahead of everybody else. And you can hear that in his music. He says that his music is is sent to him by a kind of like universal broadcasting system. He compares himself to a radio. And he's just bringing in what comes and giving it to us all, you know. And I think that as well is why his music often feels timeless, because it bounces around different genres. They don't fit into a particular time zone. The director of Keyboard Fantasies, Posey Dixon, there in conversation with Monocle's Paige Reynolds for Friday's edition of The Globalist. Our final highlight of the show comes from the latest edition of Monocle on Culture. On this week's show, the team headed to Prop Store, an auction house that specialises in the sale of objects and costumes from some of the biggest blockbusters in film history. Inside you can find Batman, Spider-Man, Marty McFly's hoverboard, replicas of some of cinema's most notorious monsters and all sorts of other artefacts all ready to go under the hammer. What we have here is from Back to the Future. So this is one of Marty McFly's hoverboards from Back to the Future. This is actually the front cover catalogue piece for our auction. This is quite a significant hoverboard because of the finish on it. And um, when you look at this specifically, you can see the light reflecting on it. And it it has sort of a a three-dimensional aspect to it, which is created by using a lenticular film. So this is known as a lenticular board. Now, the lenticular boards, without boring your listeners, is how they started uh, as they, they got underway with production. This is how they wanted them to look. And if you look at the details quite closely, you can see that all of these uh, decals are hand-applied, they're individual, very, very time-consuming to produce. And for a film like Back to the Future, where this particular prop is so heavily used, they have to make multiples of them. So they would not only have hero versions and lightweight versions, and this is a lightweight carrier version, but they would have ones with you know wheels on for skateboards, on springs to make it look like he's hovering and stuff like that. 
And so they, so they might make sort of 40, 50 of these in total, including all the different iterations. And to try and do that one at a time was just too time consuming. So as they progressed into production, what they did was they actually just took a photograph of this and then used a photo print of it and then just laid that down. So we know from the construction of this that it's an early version of it. This, this hoverboard is kind of like a key element in the film. It helps him escape and all the rest of it. It's got, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a piece of plot as much as a piece of tech, I suppose, and as much as it is a, a prop as well. Generally speaking, as we look around the room, is it props that are sort of have a starring role in films or very specific props that might only appear, appear once that tend to get your buyers sort of excited? Do you know what I mean? Things that are kind of the, a film hinges on and Indiana Jones pushing this particular statue. Is that statue sort of worth something or is it his hat that's always the most sort of expensive lot? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And, and a lot of that is based upon the particular collector, actually, and what it is that they like to collect. You know, we're dealing with people who come from all backgrounds who have a huge variety of interests. Some people only collect props. Some people only collect costumes. Other people are interested in set deck or production artwork. And so the value lies in the eye of the beholder, really. And that's what we find quite fascinating about it. You know, to, to, to a Back to the Future fan who, who really is into hoverboards, this will be the holy grail. But if you're from the Stormtrooper helmet from Star Wars, completely disinterested, not because it's a costume piece, but just because this is what he's into. So, you know, uh, both the Golden Idol uh, and the hat from, from Indiana Jones, hugely valuable pieces in their own right. We sold uh, a hat from the Temple of Doom last year for £300,000. We sold uh, a Raiders of the Lost Ark hat prior to that. I went for about £400,000. But the Golden Idol, if that was to come up to sale at the at open market at auction, that would be a directly comparable price. You've got to make sure it's the real deal. There's a lot of replicas of those out there. It should have baby doll eyes fitted into it because originally it was set so the eyes would actually move and track Indy as he comes through the cavern there, through the, through the temple. So, uh, sorry, going down the rabbit hole of detail there but as I said I can I can go on many tangents and keep talking about this stuff all day long okay let's uh, let's take a little let's have a look at the Star Wars section inevitably we're going to end up at the Star Wars section I suppose <laughs> well we got there pretty quickly uh, yes so in the cabinet here we have uh, an array of different Star Wars pieces from from the different films as well so you've got material here that's from the prequels some of the lightsabers that we're seeing here and then you've also got some of the material from the original trilogy uh, in total, in the auction catalogue, we've got over 100 Star Wars lots. Star Wars content is incredibly popular with collectors, both because of its aesthetics, but also that sort of instantly recognisable nature to them. You know, there's not many people who'd walk into a room and see a Stormtrooper helmet and not know what it is. And that also is a big part of the appeal to collectors. So starting at the top here, actually, right at the back, we have a, a really rare um, Empire Strikes Back poster. It's called the, uh, the sort of Gone with the Wind style UK release. Yeah, we've got the, the the sort of clinch there, we the kiss. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Hence the name. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and um, and that's that that in itself is is a rare poster and a valuable poster that has an auction estimate of around ten thousand pounds on it just for a poster. Rare to find it in that sort of condition as well. It's in beautiful condition and really strong, vibrant colours. You can see there in the artwork too. Then coming down the shelf, we have uh, Anakin's Hayden Christensen's lightsaber for, from Revenge of the Sith. So this is actually what we call uh, a hero lightweight. So we talked a minute ago about the Back to the Future hoverboards, how you have these different styles that are manufactured for the film. Exactly the same for the lightsabers. So for the lightsabers, they would have a, a hero close-up heavyweight version, which would be all metal. This is actually made of resin. It looks like metal. It looks like shiny, high-polished metal, but it's actually made of resin. It's then vacuum metal 
metallized to give it that real metallic look to it. And then you have the rubber grips around the uh, around the side there, and all the various uh, switches and and uh, diodes on there as well. Um, I mean, this is an amazing piece of kit. Super handsome thing. So that the weightier objects are put in the the actor's hand, so that it's got that it's got that weight for the close up shots. But then when they're using it to, for a fight scene or something, then they use the light lightweight one. Is that how it? Works? Yeah, very close to that. So this would probably be used uh, as what we would call a belt saber. So around the, the side of it, it has a little clip that clips onto the belt. So that means that it's going to hang on his belt, look like a hero close up version. So it can be used in close up shots, but doesn't have that weight dragging down his costume or if he's running around or something like that. For fight sequences, you might have a rubber version of that. So for stunt versions, you know, if he's getting close up close and personal. In, in battling and things like that and then from there you go to sort of the special effects versions which would have had uh, for Revenge of the Sith they actually had carbon fiber blades which were then vacuum sealed uh, with a plastic film over them so they could key the digital effects off the top of it as well. Do these things vary wildly in value and you know in terms of as I say, the kind of shot that they were in, or the, the what they were used for. Yeah, actually, that has a that has quite a big impact yeah. on uh, on props and costumes, especially if we can do what's called screen matching. Now, screen matching is going to be very difficult for a piece like this because we're looking at the really intricate details, you know, almost on a forensic level, uh, where we see what we can match up both in the prop that we have or the costume we have and what's on screen. So some of that is born out of us going through sort of behind-the-scenes photos. We have a a huge reference library here at Prop Store where we've scanned uh, crew members' behind-the-scenes photos. We've curated a massive collection over nearly 23 years now, I suppose, we're going. Um, And so we're using that. But then also we're just using modern technology. You know, with Blu-ray now, we can freeze frame a Blu-ray and zoom right the way in and look at the weave of a cloth. And so we can actually see whether or not we can actually match that cloth weave or we can match a wood grain or the organic materials. So screen matching is quite important to collectors because it sort of raises it to the next step. The sort of provenance factor, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's it's, it's, some of it's the provenance, but it's also the sort of... uh, I don't know, the sort of boasting element of it. You can sit there, freeze frame with your mates and you're you know, watching TV and go, oh, that's mine, that one right there. That is this hoverboard. You know? I've just shot you with that exact blaster. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. So it's, it's all, it's, you know, it's, there's sort of levels of it and also, you know, levels of how the sort of layers of interest there are with collectors as well. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Markus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monaco 24 and thanks for listening.